We often talk about scale and regeneration, but there are very few projects that I know of that operate at this scale. What if we could regreen the Sinai Desert and not only bring back an ecosystem full of abundance, think a lot of fish, plants, trees, and thousands of people living healthily and happily. But by restoring the local water cycle, we can influence the weather patterns in most of the Middle East and the Mediterranean. Sounds like science fiction, listen and learn why and how we need to think and act at scale. Tempering climate change, bringing back rivers, preventing floods, and obviously lots and lots of nutrient-dense food. The promises of Regenac often sounds straight out of a science fiction book. And for these promises to be met, we need to significantly scale regeneration to a landscape scale within this decade. Welcome to a new series where we look into the technologies needed to bring regeneration to a landscape scale. In this series, we'll look at already existing technologies, digital tech, ag tech, new financing mechanisms, etc. that can scale fast enough during the next 10 years. Technologies which put significantly more money into the pockets of farmers, landowners and land stewards who are regenerating their and our soils so they can go faster. And we'll ask the question, what is missing? What needs to be urgently developed over the next years? We're very happy with the support for this series by the Grantham Environmental Trust, which supports strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. You can find out more at granthamfoundation.org. In March last year, we launched our membership community, make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits, and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash investingregionag or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to another episode today with Madi Ackermans, the co-founder of The Weathermakers. The Weathermakers strive to develop watershed-wide ecosystem regeneration by influencing the vegetation to increase freshwater availability through land atmospheric processes. Welcome, Madi. Thank you, Kuhn, for having me. To start with the personal question, I have a lot to ask, obviously, on the Weathermakers, but what brings you to the Weathermakers and to take on such an ambitious soil, but actually way beyond soil regeneration process? What led you to joining the Weathermakers, co-founding the Weathermakers and going very deep in this topic? The friendship with Thies, I would say. Thies was requested to think about Bardeville Lake and the location that we will discuss a little bit more on later regarding, is it possible to regenerate the lake and create more fish? for the people around the lake also, to feed and have an economy, etc. And it, during that time, he spent a lot of time at my dining table, as we had a family with children and a scheme each day, and he was by himself. So he tended to sit at my table and discuss. And I was able in that time to bring a little bit the testament to the story. So we're talking about the Sinai, where many of our religious books are situated partly, So I was able to bring that kind of knowledge to the table and it triggered me a lot to reread a lot of the texts. And by the time that he needed to start his own company, because it was too ambitious and too green for the company that he worked at at that time, he asked me to take up the management of the company. And of course, this is such an amazing vision. So I was very happy to say yes. And I didn't think about it a lot. So really knowing why. It just resonated with me. So here I am. Because it's not that you've been in the Sinai. We're talking about the Sinai, which is currently part of Egypt, but just go to Google Maps and, and 
Envision, it's a massive place, mostly seems desert at the moment, but there's a lot of opportunity, but we'll get to that later. It's not that you've been there very often that the place resonated with you, apart from the religious connection, obviously, but it's not that you were a very frequent Egypt visitor or something like that. It was more than that, but it wasn't specifically the place, I think, or at least you haven't, you weren't visiting there very often before you joined uh, and co-founded the Weathermakers. I have no ecology background. I have no biology background, no technical background. So for me, it's a far-fetched choice, let's say. I do have good connection with the earth, I would say. So a lot of my choices I make by that energy. And since we started this, I did visit the Sinai. And I can say that the earth energy at that location is very high frequency. So I do think that probably assisted in me coming to this path. But uh, no, it is a far-fetched choice, but uh, very willingly taken. And so just for people, I will link a Great Guardian article on what you're trying to achieve, but in a few sentences, which is very difficult, but for the people that didn't read that yet or haven't ever heard of the Weathermakers, what are you trying to achieve in, in your first project? I'm imagining there will be others following. You're very ambitious in that sense, but what are, in a few sentences, what is the the central theme of the project in the Sinai? Our central theme is water. So you started in the introduction about soil, a few sentences, so I won't <laughs> say too much, but water is the central point of view for us and we want to heal the water cycle. So we're really talking about creating such natural systems that the water cycle itself will take over and create enough moist for the whole system to heal and become abundant and to have us then not need it in the system anymore. Well, us as the weather makers, but people, of course, are part of the system. We are part of nature. So, Yeah. And this is a place where I'm imagining many people envisioned or they see desert when they see the place. There's a very shallow lake that used to be a lot deeper. And that's one of the central places where you are planning an intervention or already doing actually a, a smaller intervention. But I think many people, and that's actually the title of the that article as well, our biggest challenge is the lack of imagination. Many people see a desert or see a landscape as well. If we talk about regeneration in other places, Australia, but also here in Europe and, and the US, and sort of assume it's always was like that, even though it's degrading in front of our eyes. How do you, this is a very big question, how do you trigger people on that imagination? How do you make people join you on the journey? I mean, you joined these and you were triggered enough by that imagination to see more than the sand and more than the desert and more than a shallow lake that is pretty basically dead and you actually see the potential of a lot more life, fish, restoring water cycles, vegetation, very lush, etc. How do you trigger that imagination in other people? Because you must have done it a few times because you have a quite a large team now, a lot of other people supporting you. How do you trigger that imagination in people to see more than a degraded landscape? I think it's the connection to nature. We connect towards nature and imagine what is or what has been there. And that is such an intrinsic value for each and every person. Everybody resonates with that. So I think we are carrying that energy with us. So when we are talking to a group or to a person, we light up, you could say. So I think that energy really, really helps. We did also create it, a green Sinai by using computers and drawings, etc. So we visualize it actually to share with people as well. But we don't need it for people to actually connect to it. Just a short talk of three minutes most of the time is enough for people to be triggered enough to bring their values. 
so let's, because this is much bigger and that's why I'm, I'm very interested in it than just, just between brackets, a simple regeneration project that we see very often, like we do some waterworks, we restore some vegetation. This is, and that's in your name, the weather makers. This is a, a scheme to influence the local weather patterns. Was that there from the beginning that the ambitious was so high that you actually want to influence quite a large weather system? It's part of the Mediterranean. It's part of the other side as well of the Sinai. Like this is not, this is almost geoengineering with nature at its core. Was it part of the plan from the beginning or did it really start with, okay, let's see if we can restore this lake. And then suddenly you found out like, wow, this is part of such big system and we can influence that as well. Well, the initial question was about the lake, but at that time it was still with the dredging company. For them, it was regenerating the lake. Just for people, what is a, a dredging company? If you have no idea, that's what, what if you have to describe it in a, in, in what to, to a child, how would you describe a dredging company? Well, dredging is one of the biggest industries we have. It's deepening canals, it's creating ports, it's deep sea mining. It's uh, uh, also, uh, they're a big part of placing the windmills in the oceans. Underwater infrastructure. Yeah. Well, it's being able to scrape away the bottom of the ocean to create infrastructure there. So uh, if it's rock or is it uh, uh, mud or it doesn't matter, they can they can take it out. It's quite an, an intensive, I would say, negative footprint or extractive industry. As uh, it, Even if you do it with the best intentions, it's quite a an industry with a lot of impact. Well, very much related also to the oil industry and in infrastructure, of course, we need it. And it also created land, as we know in the Netherlands. Uh, the Netherlands is created by placing sand at, lo- uh, at at spots, which also the dredging industry will do. But yes, it has a very negative footprint, you could say. But they have the potential to have huge impact. They can change the Earth's view that you can actually view from satellites. So you could use that kind of potential to do good. So that's why we have a large scale impact and we dream large scale. And so it was first a lake and then how did it become influencing a weather system? Well, it started with the lake and then it was still comprehensive enough for the dredging company to keep it within their scope. At the moment that we started to think, hey, we can change the wind we can actually heal the water cycle for the full northern part of the Sinai, and that will influence the wind pattern. So in that sense, it will influence also the weather system of the Indian Ocean and the full of the Mediterranean. So it's not just the Sinai water cycle, but we're talking very much bigger than that. When that became part of our vision, that was the moment we needed to step away from the dredging company and do it ourselves. So that large impact is the reason that we founded the company. Without that, we would never have done it. And one of the first things we did when we started the company is create a conference with all the institutes of the Netherlands. We have a lot of smart people in the Netherlands regarding water, regarding weather systems like KNMI, uh, Deltares, uh, uh, Wageningen. Uh, so we're very well placed in the world for water engineering, you could say. So the first thing we did was have a conference to have the question, can we not do this? So what is the reason we cannot? So that was the scientific question, like, please tackle us. Please let us know why this is an insane plan, why we cannot do this. And they were not able to do so. So then it was full force. 
And weren't they critical at all? Or were they just saying, you're crazy, but we don't have really good arguments? What was the response? Or please go ahead. Somebody has to do this. What was the general, let's say, energy in the room or a mix? Well, the energy was very positive, although there was also a very critical, can we do this? Are we allowed to do this? What will be the consequences? We don't know, so we shouldn't. Uh, that kind of energy was there. But also, we do know that we're in a hot spot <laughs> together and we do need to do something. And we're talking about a region where it's well, the, the political tension, the people are not able to take care of their own livelihood. Uh, so there is so much gain at that location that it's also a vision that we, you know, even if it's 1% chance that we can do this, we should. And we were at that moment already very much assisted by what we call our Jedis. We have a group of scientists, biologists that have spent their whole life creating visions, creating solutions, creating data and theories at, at a high level that are now like 80 year olds that really assist us and stand with us. And they all came to the Netherlands also during that convention. So that gave it this, this, whoa, these people are actually telling us also that, you know, the weather makers are correct in saying, yeah, let's do this. So it was a very hopeful gathering. And then what were the first steps after that? Like what you, you come out of this conference energy that, that we all know. In this case, you organize it yourself. So maybe it was even higher. The energy people didn't shoot it down. Then when was this? And, and then what was the next step? Well, this was November 2017. And just so you know, we started April 1st, 2017. So at the time, people said, what? You're going to do a conference in November? Are you crazy? And uh, who are you hiring to do so? No, no we're just, we'll, we'll do that. And, you know, we organized in two months and... Everybody came and we had a location in the Raadszaal. So that's like of the, of the municipality, like the, the beautiful room they have. And it was a two day. So we had everybody staying at hotels. And I don't know, there was this magical energy that we just, we organized and it was done. And we had the first night, we had a dinner at the parents of Thies and they, they cooked themselves and it, it, it was amazing. And actually afterwards it was like, wow, did we actually do this? Like... <laughs> And there was no moment of doubt while creating. So we had very high energy coming out and there was nothing keeping us in moving forward. And I think it assisted a lot in getting it back on the agenda of the dredging company. Because as I said, when it started to be that big, we had to do it by ourselves. And they supported us a lot with creating work for us as engineers so in that sense, they bring us the revenue that we need to stand. But of course, for us, it's how much of that energy can we bring to actual regenerative projects or to Bardeville and the Sinai. And at the moment of the convention, the interest of the dredging company started to be a little bit down. Like, this is too big. How much are we going to invest in this actually? You know, maybe we need to leave it a little bit behind. And after the convention, they were like, whoa. Did you see all these people that said that we can actually do this? So it assisted a lot in the belief within the dredging company and having their board also discussed it, this on high level and making the SDGs, but also the regenerative way, a very big part of their future focus, which of course is already like huge impact if they actually yeah. do that. Yeah, if, if, if that would be the only thing, but... 
Just to take one step back, you mentioned us as a company a few times. You very deliberately set up a company and not a non-for-profit. I think many investors in the room, um, saying the virtual room, will be very happy to hear that. But can you explain why you chose to do that uh, very deliberately? If you're an NGO, you have to ask for money and it doesn't go well with me. My energy goes down, my light tends to slimmer down and I need to stand in my light if I want to have this happen together with all of us. So for me, it's it's already that. It's already taking care of yourself part. But what is very important is we believe that this will be the biggest industry out there. So it will be bigger than, than regenerative energy, if you would ask me. And we can't do that with one company. And we can't do that with giving money. We need to have people copy-paste us and start being part of this. And we can only do that if we show that you can make money with it. So we need to show that we can take care of our own families, have a healthy business with a healthy business opportunity so that others will join and make it happen. And so what is the business model currently in the the project in the Sinai? I mean, there's a huge dredging part that needs to happen. There are a lot of other moving parts. How would you describe to an investor the business opportunity there, apart from that regreening the desert and influencing weather systems, is a, a very significant goal to you and very significant outcome, obviously. But what is the business opportunity if you have your your meeting with investors as you, you regularly have? Well, how do you describe that unique opportunity and the why now, which people always like to know? Well, A, I think it's important to add that at this moment, we don't have external investors so as you mentioned, when you talk to your investors, we tend to tell ourselves, let's imagine we are having investors because we do need to have that focus to show that we are worthwhile. So when you are talking to not your investors yet, but potential investors, what do you say? Well, I think that's very important to potential investors. Yes. I think A, it's very important to split up the project in phases and then each track even in more phases because there are many different complex systems that we need to use and they will not all have the same kind of business scheme or opportunity. Uh, phase one, track one, is uh, regenerating the coastal zone. And I think that's also the one that is most intertwined with the dredging company. And also it's like it's in the sense of it's an infrastructural project. Mm-hmm. And we're used to talk about millions if we talk about infrastructural projects. So that really assists. Probably hundreds of millions, yeah. Yes, no problem. That's like still a small project. So that really helps in this sense. How is the business case at this moment set? If you look at the quality of the aquatic systems and the fish stocks out there, we are having a problem. It's almost like don't eat fish because there's not enough out there. But if you look at regenerative time schedules, your aquatic system regenerates much quicker than your land system. So we should first have our attention on the coastal zone, create more fish stocks so that people can eat from it, have livelihood about it, and then move forward. And the investment of the lake will be earned back by the government via the VAT out of the economy that creates, is created with the fish stock. So we're really talking about a fish engine within the lake and creating an abundant system of which people can eat, have export, economy, 
pay taxes. And that's the first step to restore the fish stocks, to restore the lake that it can carry an abundance of fish. And in this case, you say you mentioned the return model is through simple or simple. It's not simple, but increased economic activity and thus VAT. And so you're envisioning that the, the Egyptian government will pay for this and see it as an investment in regional development, as they do all the time in many other places, could be sewage systems, could be roads, could be anything. Would that already be enough to start to, like, let's get a bit into the fish system. Would that be enough to start restoring a significant amount of vegetation also around the lake? Is that a, the first trigger there? Definitely. You need the wetlands, you need the mudslides, you need, yeah, you need that part to have an abundant aquatic system. So that's all part. And I think you're right. It is a simple business case, you could say. The only thing is you need someone to own the land and the VAT system around it, which makes it complex because you need yeah. to have a go-ahead on very high level in a political sense. So that is a, you have a long road. It's not like you have one person saying, hey, I've got a plot of land, let's do this. Let's go. Yeah. So that, that makes it complex. Yeah, you need to convince the the right parts of the Egyptian government all the way up to the top, that this is... Uh, all the way up to the top, yes. That this is very doable and looking very good for him or for them uh, whenever this is successful and not a risk that could taint any political careers, etc., etc. Of course, you get into a lot of political interesting uh, discussions. Yeah. Well, you know, we're talk if, if we're talking business case, we most of the time only talk about money, like first-rate money. Uh, so that's why I'm saying the VAT and the fish. But actually, as a government, of course, they have a huge problem that it's a location where there's a lot of disputes, an unsafe location, not always easy for them to go to, terrorist activities, and they want to have it part of Egypt, but it's the Sinai. So, you know, there tends to be sometimes a little bit of discussion. So just creating a balanced situation is already of a huge value to the government. But we cannot easily say that value is, you know, accumulated towards this and this amount. And of course, the same goes for if you have a system where people can take care of themselves, they won't run off to Europe to have a life for their children and themselves. So also there is a lot of value so the value, I think the value added will be enormous, but it's very diff. A, when you calculate, because we like calculation. So we, you know, we tend to say like, oh, <laughs> it's a very beneficial project. But A, when you mention that kind of amounts, people tend to say like, oh, that's too much. So it takes away of the credibility. And it's far-fetched for people because they tend to say, oh, but I'm too little a person to have such big impacts. And the Weathermakers is a too small a company to have that kind of impact. But we actually believe that as humanity, that's why we are also called the, the Weathermakers, because everybody can call themselves a Weathermaker, because as humanity, we have always been already Weathermakers. We actually can create such big impact if we want to take care of ourselves and be part of nature. But it's a system change. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a huge switch. So, And for the current, the first phase, I imagine the right people say yes tomorrow. How long do you envision that first phase to take 
before you can start saying or speaking about abundance of fish and abundance of life, let's say in the lake and around the lake, is that months, years, generations, well, what is the timeline we're looking at here for this specific very large area? Like it's not just a small lake. We didn't, it's not just for people to understand this is massive, but what are you seeing in terms of, let's say the money comes, the approval comes, so probably the approval comes first, then the money. You start tomorrow, day after tomorrow. What are the timelines we're looking at before we see significant significant impact and maybe even before the weather starts adapting to it or starts being influenced and being made, quote unquote? For the weather, we need three tracks. So we're talking now about phase one, track one. So the weather will come later. That impact is a longer term. However, the aquatic system, when you start dredging, as I said, you know they can do huge amounts in very short time. So our biggest challenge is going to be the management systems to have them have a clear view on the impact they're having while dredging because they have a different outcome request now. Huh? Normally, yeah. <laughs> normally it's like dig as much as possible. So they need to dredge the lake. So they need to make the lake a lot deeper and all that sediment from like two or four meters, but it goes down a lot more. That sediment in this case, you need it and you need it probably in a certain state. And So what is so different from a normal assignment they do when they have to dredge a port and make it deeper or have to do some work like that? What is the, the challenge for that? Let's start first with your previous question, because I need to answer that first. The first results you're already going to see in like three months time. So that's really quick. At this moment, there are like 2000 families living from the lake and it used to be way more everybody living around the lake used to live from the lake but it's there's not enough net there yet so for the, those first families those first three months is going to be huge impact because they're going to have enough food on their tables and they're going to have all that hope coming and you know that's enormous already that impact is done because you dredge inlets towards the ocean so it's not deepening the lake yet it's creating flushing of fresh water from the ocean, which is less saline, cooler, and you create more oxygen, so you create more life in the lake itself. So that's part one. And that's going to have a huge impact in a very short time. If you're talking about the full lake, we think it's going to take us five years. And you're, as you said, yes, you're going to use what you dredge and use that to create the wetlands surrounding the lake so you're going to create nature there where juvenile fish and all the trophic levels of life can start to regenerate and also plants you know plants trees and have their root systems revive those soils and that's going to have a huge impact and that's a timeline which is sensible for everybody straight away and it will get to that abundant point in those five years time and it continues after, obviously, but it, it's going to hit like a significant tipping point in abundance relatively quickly. Like five years is, is not a lot. I mean, it's a lot, but it's not a lot at the same time. Well, and of course, the Egyptian government wants us to do the three years. So let's see, you know, how much time we take for it. But yes, the lake is going to regenerate very quickly. Is it possible to do it faster? Or is this, this timeline is really based on, let's say, a growth curves, curves in nature, like you cannot pull a piece of grass, it's not going to grow faster because of that, or a tree, or make fish grow faster? Or is this also limited by resources and things like that? Well, it actually links also to your the question that you already asked when I didn't answer the other one yet. If you have a normal dredging project, it's like how much cubic 
meter of substance you can dredge within a day eh? and just let go. And now you really have to look at, yes, but if you go slower, you keep more intact, then you have less, you know, the settlement needs to have time. You don't want to over stir the whole system, which will have negative impact on the fish, etc., etc. So you need to take more time to do the work that could be done faster. And the game is going to be with monitoring also, like where can we move faster and what what time do we need? We're, we will learn while doing. And it's it mainly depends on also the waves, the currents, uh, tidal energy. So the most important thing is, is to have the people that are doing their work have all these different data inputs so that they can have easy access towards decision-making. Can I move forward? Do I need to go slower? Can I go faster? So that will actually optimize the productivity and also the timeline of the project and the outcome. Is that what you're building? Like on technology-wise, like these monitoring, measuring, and then management systems to work with a dredging company because you're not dredging yourself, but to make sure that the outcome is the best possible and still at the the least possible time because you have the attention there, obviously. Is that where you spend a lot of the time of the company on? It's a very important part. Definitely. And I think in the long term, it will be one of our main passes. So at this moment, we put a lot of time and effort in engineering design itself. What is needed? How much is needed? Uh, what are the volumes? What kind of regenerative aquatic ecosystems do we need? What are the habitats, etc.? So there's a lot of energy going in that part and also in the development of new technologies that we need to transfer the aquatic towards the land system. But in the long term, I see for us as a strategy and also for creating the impact that we need, the actual management systems to have every party within this complex transferal of energy have the data available to make their own decisions. So yes, I think that is uh, our main goal to create that and also to put that in a contractual setting so that we can also have... KPIs on top of that and understand if we actually hit our goals and have value systems connected to that. And what is still missing there? I mean, apart from that, that overview is probably not there, etc. But is there are there pieces of technology you're you would love to have or systems you would love to have? Like if that would exist, that would be amazing. Um, certain sensors, monitoring, or completely different decentralized autonomous organizations. Like what if you had a wish list, what would be on top? to be able to get off the shelf tomorrow and use? My wish list is actually to create the minimum viable products. So I need a location to do so. I have the team ready. We have the competences in-house. We know in which language we want to create it. We want to create a digital twin of the, of the environmental data of the earth. We know how to do so, but we need time and investment to, to do it and a location to trial it on. So... I would say a coastal zone. And how many other areas like the project you're working on now are there? Like, let's say this doesn't happen or doesn't happen anytime soon or it does happen and the company is looking, okay, what's next? Are there many other coastal zones with lakes like that or many other places where you could apply this at this scale and have weather impact? Have you looked at that? I can, can't imagine you didn't, but are what's the zone beyond this specific project? How many other projects could you be working on? 
I think there's a there's a divide in the question for me. We have the goal to have watershed wide impact. And a watershed, definitely if you look in the Netherlands, for instance, when are we hitting a mountain range 2,000 meter high that's pretty far away from us as a coastal zone? It's the Alps, basically, yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it's a very widespread area. I mean, you could say that as a Dutch, we are part of the Brazilian watershed. I mean, there's just ocean between us. So then it's such a huge area that it's almost impossible to get to that point immediately or to have a project in sync to have that done. The Sinai is, I think, the most perfect, beautiful, small watershed out there to do this. So if you look at our actual goal, watershed-wide ecosystem regeneration, the Sinai is the ideal location. However, there are very many small watersheds available. So a coastline with a mountain top not that far away, and it could be that it's just a very small wadi, but each and every wadi would be fantastic to do this. So the world is our stage, you could say. So there's a lot of possibility to have projects. And we're not only talking about coastal zones, we're also talking about rivers, lakes, and having them be abundant again. And, you know, in the rivers, for the, in the Netherlands, for instance, we talk a lot about pollution because of a too high level of nutrients. But nutrients are not a pollutant. They're just in an imbalanced state within the water system. And life, living biomass, can actually, you know, balance that out. So it's not only salt, it's also freshwater systems. So where there's water, we can do stuff. We can do our work or we can, you know, have other people be intrigued and bring their energy and we, because you very specifically mentioned we would love others to do this as well. We would love competitors' competition. Let's imagine we're listening or there's a group of investors listening to this. What would you tell them if they are getting interested and they should in, let's say, the water cycle restoration or regeneration? Let's not just focus on soil. The water cycle is what drives it. Where would you point them? What would you tell them? Obviously, without giving investment advice, but what would you tell them if they're getting excited about this to to start investigating, to start talking, to diving deep into it? Because there are not so many, let's say, holistic engineers like yourself. What would be your advice to a room full of investors that are getting interested in their, their areas, their zones, in this water cycle uh, regeneration theme? Well, the biggest obstacle here is that we don't have a project yet to place the money. And a lot of investors are interested in placing their money in projects and not only investors, but also United Nations, the World Bank, uh, European Commission, etc., etc. They all have these pots of gold, you could say, and they have them ready to place in regenerative projects, but they don't have any projects to put it in, or not sustainable projects because it's projects that will need money forever and are actually depleting the aquifers at those locations. So we're talking about creating projects that have a sustainable future in the sense that you need to invest in it, but after a while, the system will keep itself in balance. So then it is a system where services could come out. So it's a very good investment if you look at the hatch again system crash that we're talking about these days. But we first need those projects. And to get there, we have the issue that 
because we ha- are working from intrinsic value, we're creating consultancy work so that we can pay our livelihood while investing all our other hours in creating solutions to get this done. But if we keep on doing it with our own revenue, which we've done for four years already, so I'm actually very proud of that, and we're now a team of 11, but it takes a long time if we keep it doing it like that. And I would say after four years, we showed that we are a viable company and we need, let's say, two and a half million to get the stress out of the money system and get the, all the energy and inspiration into the development. And then we'll have those projects where all those billions and millions can flow into and regenerate our earth because we're creating systems that can be copy-paste wherever. We want to do it open source. We're very keen on that also because as an opt-in, of course, we want to have all the data. And that will make us smarter and make us more effective and make us able to calibrate all our solutions towards even more efficient settings. So you're saying at the moment we are a bit distracted because of the, uh, the consultancy work we have to do to keep the company going, but yet, which means we're not focusing all of our time and energy and resources and vision into these projects that we would love to do, which is many, I think, consultants that also are building projects and products have that constant tension. So that's a, something that needs to be resolved to, for the, in order for you to, to be able to focus fully on these kind of projects. Would also projects be interesting in a sense that if somebody comes, yeah, but I have a, an aquatic system I have. I'm con- in control partly of a watershed, uh, partly of enough land to potentially have an impact in Australia, in somewhere else where, let's say, the water system and the mountains and the watershed is slightly smaller, maybe than the one we're describing in the Netherlands. You're obviously interested as an engineer, engineer, and as a you're also interested in projects and working on them. So that might be another route to apply it on a much smaller scale, but you still will influence the weather. And if there's one landowner, it tends to go a bit faster if he or she is on board. I'm imagining. Definitely, and I think just to to add to your comment, what have we done in these four four and a half years? Is most of the projects that we did were projects that assisted us in building up our competencies and our team to be able to do what we want to do. So we created workability tools for ships for the company, the dredging company, which improved their productivity with average 5%. Well, if you know how much these ships cost per day, then you know that that is a huge, yeah, there was a good investment of them to have us build that. But that building of that system has a lot of well competencies needed that we also need to build a system of steering them during dredging of ecology work. So in all these kind of projects, I think 80% of our time was actually spent in projects that assisted us in the build of. But we're now at that moment that I say, like, we're really ready for the track one. So the regeneration of the coastal zone, we're ready And we needed these four and a half years to really start, you know, shimmering where we needed and shining and being able to do so. We're ready. We're now investing much of our time in the solution of having the aquatic system go to the land system. And if we have a project which is large scale, then a small pilot to also assist that part will be very tangible or credible. Just what is that connection between the aquatic and the land system? We're going to get technical, but I'm very curious. Just describe it visually, because we're obviously in, in audio. Um, how does that system, what are you building there? What do you mention there, basically, 
to for us newbies to understand? Well, we need methods to reuse the sediments. And I'm talking about the sediments that once were part of an ecosystem. Let's say a lush garden of Eden with everything there, with rivers flowing, with fishes going upstream and coming down and, you know, the whole the whole setting. When that was used for agriculture, for, you know, we, we cut the trees and we... We sow plants and, you know, we, we have animals graze the land, etc. In the end, it was degraded enough to be flushed away with rain, eroded, and it came into the lake. As you said, the lake was much deeper. I mean, we're talking about tens of meters deeper, and now it's one and a half meters deep on average. So what is in that lake is that eroded sediment out of your lush system. So what we want to do is take that sediment with his indigenous seed memory, with his indigenous nutrients and everything that is needed for that specific location on the earth, because it is indigenous, and you want to place it back. But it's saline today, so we need to desalinate those sediments, and we have a prototype under construction to do so. Basically, what's interesting is that we talk a lot about soil erosion with water, obviously, in larger watershed systems, where it usually goes down a river and then it ends up in sea and it's sort of lost. I mean, it depends because also there it needs to be dredged if the end of the river gets too shallow. But in this case, it's very close. Like it's in the lake. Like you could you could touch it and see it. And of course it's saline, but it, it there is a possibility to reactivate, to bring it back and to have all that seed memory, to have all that back because it's relatively closed in terms of, uh, I think many other watershed systems cannot or it's very tricky to do it because it's runoff and it ends up in an ocean somewhere and it goes very deep but in many other places where it's so shallow maybe it, it is possible to with not too much energy to bring it back on shore and to use it again so that's where there's prototype and and work being done now and and it is also a very important in a timeline because there is a natural line that is keeping the lagoon in place so there's a land strip between the lake and the ocean, which makes it a lagoon. But that is constantly under attack of all the elements. Eh? So uh, wind, ocean, weather, uh, waves, tidal energy. And you see it already diminishing. So at the moment that that breaks, then you lose that, what we're talking about, because then it's flushed into the deeper parts of the ocean. So at this moment it's contained, but we do time is of the essence. And we're talking about that part being in place for, let's say, 10,000 years, huh? probably longer, because before that it was a very luscious lagoon. But it kept the eroded sediment in place for thousands of years. But if that breaks down, and we're talking about not, I, I think, you know, within 20 years, it could be very much quicker than that. Mm -hmm. But you see it already deteriorating as we speak. So there is a time limit on this solution, on this location. Yeah. And then I like to ask this question, what would you do if you would be in charge of, let's say, a large investment fund? And of course, you can invest in the weather makers, but I'm, I am always asking this question because I like to understand priorities. What would people focus on if they had, I wouldn't say unlimited resources, but let's say a billion dollars. What would you, tomorrow morning, you're uh, not, uh, I mean, you are still the co-founder of the weather makers, but you have now to put this money to work with all the projects you've seen, all the possibilities you've seen, what would you do with a billion dollars and why? Regenerate Sinai. Would that be enough? No, it's not enough, but it's it's a hell of a lot of money to kickstart it. 
And would it be enough to get the agreement? Like, is money the issue there? Or is it more political, not getting the right signatures and the right okays at the right places yet? Or would be a billion dollars in your back pocket actually help to kickstart some things? I'm very happy that the negotiations is between the contractor, so the dredging company and the Egyptian government, and that we come after. But let's say the Egyptian government says they don't need other people's money for this. They say they can pay for it themselves. Definitely phase one. And I think that partly is political because then it's their project and there's no other influence within their region. But I think at the moment that we say is, I mean, we have contact with them straight as well. If we would bring to the table to the whole consortium with the dredging company also, uh, hey guys, we've got a billion dollars. First loss or something, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the conditions coming with that money. I mean, each and every euro comes with a condition most of the time. But um, no, if we have a billion to spend and it doesn't have to be returned in a very quick note. Could be, it's your, I mean, you're the investor. It could be 20 years, could be 30 years, 50 years, whatever, whatever you prefer. But it has to come back. Let's say it's investment money. It's not grant capital. But you're saying that could make a significant impact in, would you only spend it there or invest it there? Or would you also look at other projects to maybe prove in different contexts and locations to to get more things going? Well, as I already said to you, Kun, this is the most perfect small watershed out there. So it has everything we need. But in not the ideal political place, we might say. It's not the easiest political sense. Yeah. No, but on the other hand, why is it not a political easy location? Probably connected to the degradation. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about what are the reasons to have war. I believe that water is a very important part of that. So also to show that impact. Mm-hmm. If it can be done there at the perfect place in not ideal circumstances. Yeah, yeah. so for me, so of course a billion, probably I would say, you know, there are some of the tracks or parts that we could pilot somewhere else to show, to learn. I mean, we're building a prototype in our back garden here in Nimbles. We don't have desert here, but is very useful also here. We need to learn. So there would be a lot of, there would be part of the investment would go to prototypes and pilots a little bit more close by where we can visit and really feel the whole setting. But that's why I was saying I need two and a half million. I don't need a billion to do that. So the big money would go to the Project Sinai because also there we have the restoring of the water cycle as an academic research. So there's PhD already going on that to have it scientifically proven what the impact of regreening is on your weather system. And you need that kind of proof to have the whole world adopt and then do the same in their region. So I would love for all the dredging ships to do the full coastline of the Northern Africa settings. I mean, there's so much to do there. So, you know, I could use all their additional productivity. So let's go. And if we have... Because for me, billion is then not enough. So if there is no limit on spending, yes, we would do the full coastal zone of the Northern Africa zone. And probably there will be a lot of investors that want to do it in Spain because yeah, that's more Western and European. Easier to digest. Yeah. Yes. So uh, yes, they're spending enough. And if you could change one thing overnight, so no longer in charge of the one billion but you have a magic power, you have a magic wand that can change one thing overnight. Could be, I mean, people have given all kinds of answers to this question, global consciousness, 
I mean, we talk a lot about food and ag taste. It could be banning all chemical fertilizers and inputs, or it could be, I don't know, consciousness on the water cycle is the key. Anything you can imagine, but you have the power to change only one thing. What would that be? Awareness of the natural laws. You call them laws, not principles? Is it on purpose? I think they should be laws. Yeah, like we shouldn't. With. For me, everything which is not a natural solution or not a natural answer will in the end create more problems. Which is interesting coming from engineers that are using these gigantic machines to do dredging. How do you combine it? How do you see dredging, which is taking pieces of the ocean floor or in this case, a lake floor, like very deep technology, very invasive technology. Is that part of nature's laws as dredging happens by nature as well? Or how do you, how do you explain that? It's using our industrial revolution or our solutions and our technology to large scale assist nature to get back to her strength and have her back in her light spot and do what she does best. So, I mean, we, we mind the world. So let's mine properly. (laughs) We broke a lot of systems and by just having awareness and meditation, we will not have it return to her natural strength in time. I mean, the earth will get back in strength in time, but not quick enough for us. And I think that as people, we have the instruments with our thumbs and our technical abilities and, and our data to assist. But I think we need to understand that we are serving and we're not demanding or controlling. So yes, I would, I would love to use all technology in the world that is available to us today to get to that point, but always with the commons it needs to bring us to a rebalanced system which will be able to be run without those technologies. So there are time limiteds. So that's the condition. It's time limited self-destruction. <laughs> self, no, it's self- time limited usage. It, we should not create dependency on technology or dependency on the big machines, but we should use our abilities to bring it in the position who don't need it anymore. I think that's a very interesting, I've been struggling with what's the application of technology as it's becoming bigger and bigger and more intrusive, etc. But I think that notion of it should run without technology at some point, then it's much easier to explain it that way than saying it needs to be nature-based, biomimicry, etc., etc., because people get around that all the time. But it should be able to run at some point relatively quickly, let's hope, without the big diggers or without the software, without the algorithms, without the sensors. But as you have investors listening to your podcasts, most of the time it's like, hey, wait, this is a strange thought. Because many institutions, for instance, run on creating new problems, new questions, because they want to do new research. And we tend to create solutions that don't need us anymore. So we want to be redundant. Which means you can work on other projects. There's a world of projects out there to do. Yes, there's a goal in it itself. We need to be redundant in the end. And we are happy to do so as we are also happy to receive a lot of competitors because there's so much work to do. But I think you you can frame it to an investor saying we don't want our limited resources, which could be software, which could be big machinery, which could be people, energy, focus, knowledge to be 
locked in one project, but it needs to be limited in time because then we can work on another one and another one. And there's an efficiency that maybe resonates well with uh, with spreadsheet people that they say, I will, let's not lock it in there because it will need us forever and it will break at some point. It's better to use our limited resources in other places and have more projects. Final question. It's never the final one, but where are you contrarian? There, there are many ways, uh, but in the, let's say the regen ag and for or the regeneration space, the large scale regeneration space, it's probably not such a busy space. Unfortunately, we need a lot more people, a lot more resources, a lot more energy and smart brains thinking about and doing things in the water cycle. But are you, when you are at these conferences and these events now online, previously offline, obviously that's hopefully coming back. Where do you see, this question comes from John Kemp, who always asks it, what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture, in this case, regeneration, that others don't? So where are you thinking differently? What do you notice at these coffee tables? You think, oh, that's weird. We think very differently about that. Let's say, firstly, we don't go to many of those conferences, online or offline, because I don't think it's where we're going to find the solution. So it's a lot of energy at this time, I think. And we're not starting our company to then have like a circus act on stage to tell about our results. Although we will have to have a lot of communication and marketing in place when we actually showed what we can do so that people can start doing it themselves. So that's a very important thing that we're lacking at this moment. We need to do better communication and better marketing. What did trigger me most was the talk about services. I was at the United Nations UNCCD uh, COP in, in China. That was the one that I visited. More than that, we didn't. And there was a lot of talk about services. And for me, mm-hmm. it was like... Ecosystem services. Yeah. yeah, why are we still talking about what can we take from the land instead of what can we bring? Do we really, as people, still don't understand that our full livelihood is created on a biosphere which is healthy. And if the biosphere is not in place, society and economy will not flourish. So when are we really starting to understand that it's done with just taking and we need to give the biosphere time to heal and we really need to assist it in that? So... My biggest annoyance was to talk about ecosystem services. So we talk about ecosystem function because if the system functions well and you understand how the balance of that system ideally would be to evolve to an abundant system, then you also understand what you can harvest. And then you harvest in a sense to have the whole system grow. So you can take services but when you understand the function of the system. So that is, thank, I think that's my name. I think there's no better way to end this conversation there. Very well said. The language we use in the space is, is up, for, up for an upgrade and an update, but it's also the language we inherited from a system that is on its way out. So we have to deal with it while we're transitioning that. I want to thank you, Maddie, so much for for coming on the podcast and hopefully it's not the last time. I'm extremely curious. I say that very often, but in this case, it's it's even more true to follow this over time and to see where this will lead to. I mean, there's an ambition here at a scale that we see, unfortunately, very rarely in this space. We often talk about hectares and not about full ecosystems and definitely not about influencing the weather, stabilizing uh, in, in a region that needs it 
so desperately. So thank you so much, first of all, for the work you do. Good luck over the next months to start phase one and get all the approval uh, you need. And of course, with all the prototypes and all of that. Thank you for the time. And if you find any investors with a plot where we can have some aquatic abundance and monitor it and create systems around it, I'm very happy to hear. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.